Well, dear friends, would you take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Acts chapter 7? And we're looking together this morning at verses 54 through just the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. And before we read God's word, let us ask that the Lord would give us light to understand. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come before You and before the Word that You've been pleased to speak and by Your Spirit preserve. And we pray that You would shine Your light on this Your Word. Lord, we confess our natural inability to understand and we plead for Your Spirit's help. Enlighten our eyes with the truth and rejoice our hearts over what You convey to us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord? Acts 7, beginning in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Him. But He, that is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at Him. Then they cast Him out of the city, and stoned Him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. This is the Word of our God. Brethren, please be seated. Over the last several chapters in the book of Acts, Luke has shown us the rising tide of hostility from the Jewish leadership towards the infant church. And we've seen this in a host of ways. We've seen threats, imprisonments, false accusations, and beatings. But shedding the blood of the innocent hasn't come until this point. So we might say that the satanic fury against the church is about to reach an entirely new level. And yet, brethren, it's a fury that has been in Satan's arsenal from the beginning when Cain slew his brother Abel. Maybe you remember Jesus' words in John 8 concerning the devil that he is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And while on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, where Satan has been thrown down and his power to deceive the nations is curtailed, Satan's methods still haven't changed. He incites the sons of disobedience in whom he works to burn with hatred against the truth, against the servants, of Jesus Christ. Now Luke, as he relates the first death for Christ, 
after Christ's own death for us, is reminding us that the spiritual warfare that we wage is no light matter. We have real enemies. And while our struggle is not against flesh and blood, as Paul will put it in Ephesians 6, yet flesh and blood, those blinded by the devil, may shed the blood of the saints, thinking, as Jesus once put it, that they're actually doing service to God in the process. This is a sad scene of satanic delusion and wrath. And yet it's also a scene of peace. The peace in which a believer in Christ can have in the most horrific of circumstances. Because while man may condemn unto death, there is no condemnation for the one in Jesus Christ. Stephen is here standing boldly and he's denouncing the Jewish leadership, both of the Hellenist party, that is of the Greek-speaking Jews, from the synagogue of the freedmen, and he's denouncing the Sanhedrin, and they're going to explode against him. And yet, as with our Savior, Stephen turns his execution into an opportunity to pray. I want you to see four things with me as we make our way through the text. And we begin with... Hatred erupts in verse 54. <clears throat> Hatred erupts. In a masterful speech in verses 1 to 53 of Acts 7, knowing probably that it wouldn't persuade these hard-hearted Jews, Stephen had explained three great themes of redemptive history. I'll try not to preach the sermon I preached previously about this to you, but just to remind you, Stephen explained how the promise of God and the presence of God were never tied to the temple in Jerusalem. They were never exclusively located where the temple had been constructed. God had sovereignly set His grace on the likes of Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, and He had been with His people wherever they went. The Lord revealed His mercy and His promises to Abraham and Joseph and Moses in places like Mesopotamia, Haran, Egypt, Midian, and the wilderness of Sinai, where God came down on the mountain. All of those places are outside of Canaan. Further, during all of those times, there was no temple. Because the temple was only a temporary picture of a crucial biblical principle, the Emmanuel principle, which of course will come to fruition in Jesus Christ who is Emmanuel. The temple only pictured it. Further, the temple pictured the hope of Eden restored. And that, again, favorite part of your Bible where you read of the temple furniture. It, it depicted garden-like imagery of a return to the presence of God. But the Jews have missed all of that. Then secondly, Stephen had explained that they missed their redeemers. The brothers of Joseph despised Joseph, though he was God's instrument to save them. Israel also repeatedly thrust Moses aside. They renounced his leadership. They reviled him personally. They ran roughshod over the law of God that God had revealed to Moses. And while Stephen's audience prided themselves as the followers of Moses, they seemed to forget that Moses said a prophet like him and greater than him was coming. Finally, Stephen had indicated that his hearers were not like 
the faithful remnant in Israel of old. Rather, they aped their disobedient fathers who always resisted the Holy Spirit. And how is this clear? Well, they say they love Moses, but they disobey the law Moses gave to them. And that disobedience is seen in spades as they betrayed and murdered the righteous one, the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. This unrepentant hatred for Jesus seals the judgment coming upon these Jews. So Stephen denounces them as stiff-necked and uncircumcised people. That was not a compliment. And they were not happy about it. And there is no circumspection in them at all. They have no wisdom above, which James 3 says is open to reason. Instead, they heard Stephen's words, verse 54, and they were enraged. Now this verb literally means to divide with a saw in the sense of being cut into or cut deeply. That is, sliced to the very depths. Now it's very similar in language to what had happened at Pentecost where some had heard Peter preach and were cut to the heart. However, dear friends, conviction of sin can actually cut the sinner in two ways. It can, on the one hand, produce by grace godly sorrow in those who love the Lord and are going to be led to repentance. We can think of Peter when his eyes caught Jesus after he had denied the Lord Jesus and he went out and wept bitterly as he remembered the word Jesus had said. Or on the other hand, it can produce what we're seeing here. A desire to cover the sin, to completely dismiss the sin, and eliminate the one telling you you're guilty. It is a shoot the messenger mentality. So the sense of the verb, when accompanied with hatred, means to be in a state of rage. These Jews in their sinful passions, while they're aiming to suppress the truth, those passions are so powerful that they were caught up in a frenzy of fury. They have lost their minds, we might say. It's similar, actually, to what we see with King Saul in the Old Testament. When his son, Jonathan, had approached him and told him not to pursue David, to kill him, and Saul said, yeah, I won't do that anymore. But then he's still doing it. And Jonathan goes and he questions his father and he says of David, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And without the slightest hesitation, with no reflection, no thought of repentance, Saul immediately throws his spear at Jonathan to kill him. Thankfully, he missed. But it's the same kind of blind rage seen right here. These Jews are so infuriated that they, verse 54, ground their teeth at Stephen. Now that's a bit of a strange expression, but it's used in Scripture to depict the most intense anger. Psalm 37 indicates it's actually characteristic of the wicked to plot in hatred against the righteous and grind their teeth at them. Psalm 112 uses similar language. Evil men can so despise the godly that they want them crushed and that desire actually elicits a physical response 
jaw-clenching, teeth-grinding anger. And brethren, we might call this response the very hatred of hell. Because you see, Jesus in the Gospels seven times speaks of the gnashing of teeth. And every time, without exception, He's talking about what the wicked will do when they are thrown into hell, when they exist in outer darkness. Hell will not be a place where anyone feels sorry for sin and grieves the evil He's done. It is a place of weeping, yes, but Jesus further says, weeping and what? Gnashing of teeth. Hatred at God. Hatred at His judgment. Well, that level of hatred, hell's darkness and anger, it can overtake a sinner in this life. And that's what we're seeing. So that these Jews irrationally rage against the servants of Christ. The difference is we see the intensity of hatred coming from these men. We need to remember that the preaching of the truth of the gospel can and will have this kind of effect on others. If a man loves his sin, and if there is delight in evil with the rejection of God, no truth speaking, no logic, can break through the darkness. Only the divine power of God can crack the hard heart. But with some, that is not their destiny. And Stephen's words, which are provoking conviction, are not given to convert. They're given to condemn. It's a hard reality to recognize that a man could be speaking in this passage who is full of the Spirit full of wisdom, full of grace, that he could declare the truth and he could still be hated and rejected. But then I also remind you of Jesus Himself, who was full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace, and only spoke the truth. And what did they do to Him? They killed Him. Dear friends, do not be surprised when truth is ignored and blindness among men prevails. There really is a devil. And he is really working to darken the minds of unbelievers, not to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's how it's going to go with some. And you need to have biblical expectations as the truth is proclaimed. There really is, Genesis 3.15, enmity, a hostility welling up to the point of murder between the seed of the serpent, those followers of the devil, those who remain in darkness, and the seed of the woman, those redeemed in Christ. So set your expectations according to biblical realism. Don't think, I'm going to be so powerful in speaking the truth that everybody who hears me is just going to embrace what I say. That is not how sin works. We've said it many times from the pulpit, from the teaching lectern, sin makes you... Stupid. Sin darkens your mind. And these men are darkened. And they rage. But then see secondly that there's consolation for Stephen. Heavenly sight. Point number two. Verses 55 and 56. While Stephen's attackers are full of satanic fury, Stephen, verse 55, we're told again, 
is full of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's work here is to fill Stephen so that he has a sudden prophetic revelation. The veil, excuse me, the veil between heaven and earth is removed for him momentarily so that Stephen is permitted to see the unseen. And he gazed into heaven. And what did he see? He saw the glory of God. Now, what Stephen is saying there, or Luke is recording for us about Stephen's sight, is picked up from Stephen's speech earlier, where Stephen had said, chapter 7, verse 2, that the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham. Likewise, Moses, also as he drew near to the bush that was burning but didn't burn up, and he heard declared to him, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Moses trembled before the sight and did not dare to look because glory was there, majesty was before him, and it was overwhelming. Yet Stephen, by grace, does look as Moses would later do on Mount Sinai and have a shining face. You remember we noted several weeks ago that Stephen's face was shining. That's a really important connection. Stephen is seeing the glorious splendor of the blazing brightness of God who dwells in unapproachable light. But not just that. He also saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now we know the right hand is a figurative expression in Scripture. It's an expression of the place of power. And it's proved to us that Jesus is clothed with divine authority and majesty. He is the living Christ, the Redeemer to whom Moses pointed. And He's now reigning on high. He's been vindicated and exalted over these people who killed Him. So He's lifted up. And yet what's interesting about Stephen's vision here is that thus far when the apostles have spoken of the risen Lord Jesus at the right hand of God, they've quoted Psalm 110 verse 1, one of the most quoted Old Testament texts in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, to sit on the divine throne communicates two crucial biblical ideas. And I want to remind you of them. First, that Jesus Christ as He sits on the throne is the reigning active sovereign over the universe. Death, Satan, and sin have been overcome. No power prevails over King Jesus. But then second, as Jesus is the seated sovereign, He's not only king, He's also priest. Having accomplished all the work necessary to achieve our salvation, He sat down having accomplished our salvation. So we're secure in Christ. And yet in this text, our great high priest isn't seen as sitting. He's standing. And that's reiterated in verse 56 as Stephen describes what he sees. This wasn't a private vision for Stephen alone. He wasn't to keep it to himself. He's declaring it. And the implication is these adversaries also need to recognize that heaven is watching what they're doing. So Stephen proclaimed, verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We probably remember that the title Son of Man was Jesus' favorite self-designation. He used it some 80 times in the Gospels. 
it was apparently maybe the one prophetic title coming from Daniel 7 that the Jews hadn't messed up, hadn't twisted with their own subtlety of meaning. But the title's messianic. Daniel had a vision. He saw the Ancient of Days, God the Father in His glory, and one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, riding the Shekinah glory, we might say, and presenting Himself before the Father. And to the Son of Man, Daniel 7, verse 14 says, the Father gave, listen to this, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him, the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and shall not pass away, and His kingdom shall not be destroyed. So as Stephen is exclaiming here that Jesus is the Son of Man, he's saying this is a fulfillment of Daniel 7. The risen Christ is reigning forever in His kingdom. That was the key word of the Davidic covenant. David would have a son who would reign forever and sit on the throne forever. His kingdom will be forever. Christ is reigning forever. And even what you wicked men are about to do shall not destroy the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a crucial thing for us to remember. Brethren, if we were there watching our beloved Stephen stoned to death, can you imagine what your emotions would be? Imagine how grieved of heart you would be. And yet Stephen's prophetic vision is saying, my death is not loss. King Jesus reigns and His kingdom cannot be destroyed. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His people will be saved. Nothing, not even your rage against me, you Jews, nothing can thwart the glory of the risen Christ. You can't defeat Him. What a comfort to receive this vision. For Stephen himself, he is assured as blood-boiling adversaries are about to pummel him to oblivion that King Jesus reigns right now and no enemy shall prevail. And yet, why is Jesus standing? Two reasons. One judicial and one personal. First, Stephen is being condemned in this context by false witnesses. We were told at the very uh, beginning of this so-called trial back in chapter 6 that false witnesses had been brought forward to testify against Stephen. It's a mockery of a judicial setting where bogus witnesses are standing to condemn him. However, as falsehood lingers in the air, the king on the throne, who is the judge and who is truth, stands to witness for Stephen. It's very similar to what Paul will say in 2 Timothy 4 as he faced a Roman judicial condemnation. Paul says to Timothy, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord, that is Jesus Himself, stood by me and strengthened me. Well, here, brethren, King Jesus is standing to support Stephen to vindicate him in the heavenly court. And vindication, dear friends, may may not look like being rescued from your earthly enemies. Vindication may not be in your life having a 
walls of water come crashing down on Pharaoh and his army and wiping them all out. It may not look like that. It may look like you die and Jesus receives you into glory. That's still vindication. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is the judge. He knows the truth. And He's, he's declaring a judicial verdict that brings personal comfort to Stephen. And then let's think about that personal nature. Jesus is communicating here not just a judicial declaration, not guilty. He's communicating a personal welcome and advocacy to Stephen. You remember Jesus once said in Matthew 10, while encouraging His followers not to fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul, rather fear Him who can destroy both body and soul and throw it into hell. Jesus then added, Matthew 10.29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And then get this. So, everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will also acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. You see what's going on? Jesus is personally acknowledging and judicially acknowledging Stephen. He's welcoming him home as a faithful witness into heaven. And the sight of this, dear friends, should give us boldness to stand for Christ, no matter the hostility we face. Because, dear friends, whatever men may do to us, if we confess Christ, Christ will confess our name to His Father. If we confess Christ, Christ will welcome us home. Do you see that Stephen is not living for the smiles of men? He is focused on acceptance with Jesus Christ, on the approval of heaven. So he lives and dies unto the glory of Jesus Christ. Are we living and dying for the approval of man or the approval of our Savior? Will we stand for Christ no matter what? When we are in the midst of trouble and it's thick against us, maybe not people going to throw stones to kill us, but when trouble is thick, are our eyes focused not on the present difficulty, but on the Christ who reigns and who prays and who welcome me home to His presence? What a comfort this is. Because Jesus hasn't changed. This is who He is for us. Thirdly, see with me. Hardness evidenced. Stephen's prophetic sight and declaration gives no pause to these hard-hearted men. In fact, the moment he speaks of Jesus standing at the right hand of God, they, verse 57, cried out with a loud voice and stopped up their ears. I want you to try to imagine this. Maybe I won't illustrate. They're yelling to overpower anything that Stephen might say, and they're putting their hands over their ears. This is so childish. It's like the five-year-olds fighting. I won't listen to you. I won't listen to you. That's the sense. What in the world are they doing? Well, later records tell us of Jewish practice, which this is what they're supposed to do if they believe blasphemy to be occurring. Of course, ironically and sadly, the stopping up of their ears only demonstrates what Stephen said about them, that they're uncircumcised in ears. They have no ears to hear. They're not going to listen. Stephen's vision testifies that Jesus is king. 
but they won't even begin to consider that truth. However, not only do they shout over Stephen, they plug up their ears and then they rush together, or better, they rushed with one accord or with one purpose against him. The word the ESV translates together in verse 57 is with one accord. It's been used by Luke four times already in Acts to express the unity of the church, how they prayed with one accord. They gathered with one accord. Here, Satan's servants have one heart to kill him. Verse 58, they cast even out of the city. The idea there is literally they're throwing him out. It's itself an action of violence. They're driving him off their so-called holy ground. And then they stoned him. Now, stoning is probably the infliction of the penalty Moses' law required in Leviticus 24. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. The congregation shall stone him. But the infliction of this penalty in the Mosaic Law assumes that there's been a legal verdict, a sentencing, and then they move forward to execution. Picture a court with a declaration of not guilty, or, or guilty, in this case guilty, and then sentencing, you are worthy of death. Is that what we have here? Stephen has spoken before the Sanhedrin in some type of judicial setting, with false witnesses against him. And the Sanhedrin, as the court, gives no verdict. We don't even see what we saw with Jesus, where the Sanhedrin had the high priest himself tearing his clothes, yelling blasphemy, and saying the man is worthy of death. Nothing like that happens here. There's no deliberation. There's no verdict. There's no sentencing. This is a moment of mob violence. Only what should send shivers up your spine. The mob is led by those who are judges in Israel. Just as the judges came down off their judicial seats to spit in Jesus' face and to slap Him, here the judges don't wait for a verdict. They're caught up in the hatred and they rush out to kill Stephen. Now we know from the condemnation of Jesus but the Jews couldn't do this. They had to have Roman approval to execute someone. You remember, they pull all kinds of strings. A rush nighttime trial of the Sanhedrin, which was illegal, an appearance before Pilate at daybreak, manipulative tactics with Pilate, who's declaring Jesus innocent. Oh, you're not Caesar's friend if you don't pronounce him guilty. They did all of this so Jesus would be killed by the Romans. Here, they don't seek Roman help at all. Why not? It's a moment of spontaneous violence. But once more, what we're seeing is those who claim to follow the law are doing what? Ignoring the law. They have the moral scruples to apply the penalty of blasphemy while blowing off the requirements of God's law as to the details. They are, and I'll put it this way for you, they are pick and choose Bible readers. Pick and choose Bible readers. Have you met some of those kind of people? They claim allegiance to Christ and they'll argue with you about certain laws of Christ. But then they simply pretend that others, maybe it's laws about sexual ethics, maybe it's something to do with the biblical 
exceptions in divorce. Maybe it's about who leads the church, who preaches in the pulpit, or the Christian Sabbath, or gossip, or how to biblically confront. They pretend that all those laws don't exist. They have a subjective reading of Scripture. I'll decide what portions I think are true and worth following, and I'll throw out the rest. But let me ask you a question. Who's really God in that scenario? You are. Well, that's exactly what we're seeing here with the Jews. They are truly idolaters. They do not love God and give their loyalty to Him according to His Word. They love themselves. They love their desires. They are worshiping what they think is best. And as we see this hardness, this pick-and-choose mentality about God's very Word, dear friends, we need to guard ourselves. We live in a world filled with subjectivism. I'll decide, I can even declare what I think I am in my own identity, as though nothing else tells me what I am. That is the height of stupidity. It is not a recognition of who's really in charge. And it's not you. It's God. Further, what does Jesus say defines us as His people? John 10, 27. My sheep do what? Hear My voice and follow Me. Jesus also said, if you love Me, what will you be found doing? You'll keep My commands. It's easy to throw stones at these Jews throwing stones. But are we concerned to be obedient to the Word of God in totality? Do we really believe the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice? Religious hypocrites are those who claim to know God, but in deeds deny Him. They're saying they're lovers of God, but they're really lovers of self. Luke then puts the spotlight on one of the hard-hearted. Verse 58, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. In chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. I've already mentioned that Saul, later the Apostle Paul, was probably a part of the synagogue of the freedmen disputing with Stephen. He couldn't overwhelm Stephen. Paul had zeal without knowledge. He couldn't overthrow Stephen's biblical logic. And he hated him for it. But Saul's presence leaves us with an encouragement in an otherwise discouraging scene. God can break the hardest of hearts. And that moves us to see lastly, holy please. As the rocks struck Stephen, he made two pleas. First, verse 59, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's very similar, isn't it, to what Jesus Himself had prayed at the cross? Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. But one noticeable difference that should make your eyeballs get big. To whom is Stephen praying? To Jesus Himself. Dear friends, this is a strikingly high view of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus isn't God Himself, then Stephen's prayer is blasphemous. One cannot pray to a person who isn't God because God alone can hear the prayers of His children. He knows all. He hears all. 
But that's who Jesus is. Jesus possesses divine qualities. And He's left us with a reminder of His omnipresence. Lo, I will be with you always. And while it's appropriate for every believer to live at every moment unto God, we should commit our spirits to God. Brethren, when we approach death, who is it who has blazed the trail to life for us? It's Jesus Christ. He is the, sometimes the translation Hebrews 12, He's the author, better, He's the pioneer or the trailblazer of our faith. He's the one who's gone before us into heaven and paved the way. And therefore, we can give ourselves to Christ in death knowing that we will be welcomed as a son. So Stephen prayed to Jesus to receive him. And then he prayed, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Once more, similarity to what Jesus prayed. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yet you have to understand that Stephen's request, just like Christ's request, is not some type of blanket absolution without repentance. If I only ask God to forgive someone, the person will be forgiven. No, there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of Christ's blood. And there must be repentance. There must be faith in the blood of Jesus that forgiveness would come to us. Because God isn't just a God of forgiveness, He's a God of justice. And that's the glory of the Gospel, isn't it? God forgives us, not because, as people will say, that's His job. It's a wicked idea. God forgives us because in love He gave His own Son to satisfy His justice that we might be reconciled. So forgiveness is not earned by the prayer of someone on your behalf. Forgiveness is sealed through Jesus' perfect life applied to your account. Forgiveness is costly. And Stephen gets that. He knows if these people remain hard-hearted and murderous towards Jesus, hell is the just penalty. What Stephen is asking here is that Christ the judge and king would show mercy according to his sovereign will to some of these opponents. But what an amazing thing for Stephen to pray. These men are killing him. And he is crying out that the Lord might save some of them. How much do we love our enemies? Oh, that we would have such a love even for killers of Christians to plead that Christ might save some of them. Dear friends, right here, He does. We don't know if any among the unnamed rabble of the synagogue of the freedmen or the Sanhedrin were saved, but we know one named man was Saul of Tarsus. The Lord is pleased to use Stephen's prayer for this violent, insolent persecutor that Saul would be rescued from destruction. Who knows what the Lord might do with your prayers pleading for the salvation of Christ to come to souls. May it provoke us to pray. And we close with this. Stephen made his last plea and then we're told he fell asleep. This is the way that the New Testament often refers to the death of a believer. Why does it talk about it like that? Because, brethren, death isn't final for the Christian. Death is a scorpion without a stinger. It's a lion with no fangs. 
Death attacks, but it can't prevail because Christ has achieved victory over the grave and He ushers all who have faith in Him into that victory. What did He say to the thief on the cross? Today, you will be with Me in paradise. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and everyone who believes in Him, though He die, yet shall He live. The dead in Christ have a spirit that goes immediately to be with Jesus in heaven. And our bodies rest. They sleep in the grave to the resurrection. Dear friends, as we look at this horrible murder of Stephen, we can yet look at it with great hope because death doesn't get the last word for the Christian. May God be praised that death can't win because death died in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray that we as Your people would live and die in faith as Stephen models for us here. May we, O Lord, have a sense of Your welcome to Your people, Your vindication of us as we rest solely in You and not in anything that our hands have done. And we pray, Lord, as we go to our dying breath, that our hope in You would be firm. Lord, draw near to us and comfort us with Your saving power. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.